But it's exciting to be here in front of you this morning as we continue in our series on 1 Peter. Uh, Now, coming out of the bullpen with a little bit of short notice, uh, I would be on the lookout for a few wild pitches and uh, maybe a brain cramp here and there as I preach this morning. Uh, But uh, we're going to do our best to continue in the series that we've been on for the past couple of weeks. And uh, my question here as we start off today in 1 Peter chapter 2 is this, is your hope in the gospel? Is your hope in the gospel? So as we continue in 1 Peter, as we begin chapter 2, I want to draw our attention back one more time to chapter 1, verse 13, where I think Peter gives kind of his thesis, his main point for the entire book. And it's here in verse 13, and he says this, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Preparing ourselves for action, preparing ourselves to live the Christian life, we are to think sober-mindedly about that hope that is only found in Christ Jesus. And every action that we take in this world, everything that we do in this world, must be motivated by that hope. So that's my question. Is your hope in the gospel? Is your hope in the gospel? You know, we all have moments of clarity in our lives, moments when we see things in a new way. We see things clearly where, you know, we may have have lived in a certain way or with certain amounts of head knowledge, but then we experience something that pours new meaning into that thing that we always carried around in our head. You know, one perfect example is when we were growing up, you know, a lot of us may have, have seen people riding a bike. And then we tried to get on the bike ourselves, and we learned that it's not as easy as it looks, right? There's a whole lot of things you have to learn other than the mental knowledge that you have to sit on the bike, keep your balance, and move the pedals. we got to experience it before we can really understand what it means to ride a bike. We get a moment of clarity when we get on that bike for the first time, and we try it for ourselves. You know, I think marriage is one of those things, you know, most people walk into marriage with a lot of ideas about what it's going to be like, only to have the experience of it be vastly different. Poor, you know, they may have been told by a good counselor along the way, you know, you got to expect this, you got to look out for this, here's some things to, you know, keep in mind as you go through marriage. And that's really hard to understand before marriage. But then as we experience marriage, all of those things begin to make sense as we experience all the, the uh, intricacies of that relationship. You know, a year ago, and they're actually here this morning, I, I married a young couple, uh, Gabe Culver and, and Rachel, and uh, a great wedding, a beautiful wedding down at First Presbyterian down in, uh, in Houston. And, and I remember uh, Gabe, I have, a, I have an affinity for Gabe because he was just finishing his first year of law school uh, after, right before they got married. And I remember how I was during my first year of law school, and I thought I knew everything after that first year. I mean, you know, you couldn't convince me that I couldn't solve all the world problems uh, after my first year of law school. That's what, you know, education tends to do that to you. You go into a classroom, you begin to discuss all of these complicated things and, and, and learn new things, and, and you become a little bit puffed up with pride, you know. And it's not until year two or year three of law school where they break that down 
and you realize you don't know very much. Well, well, Gabe was about to get that same experience because he was getting married. You know, so I told him, I said, you know, look, Gabe, I know you really think you know everything right now, but the day after you get married, you're going to realize you don't know anything, right? And that's the reality of life. We, we have lots of mental knowledge, but sometimes we need moments of clarity that make it all really make sense. I had that kind of moment, and it was actually after my first year of law school 14 years ago. And if you've known me for any amount of time, you've probably heard this story. But 14 years ago, right after I finished my first year, Jess was moving, my wife, Jessica, was moving to the Woodlands with her job. We weren't married at the time. We were, we were dating. And she had accepted a job here in the Woodlands, and, and we moved her down uh, that summer. And my first day in the Woodlands, as we drove into town, we started looking for the house that she was going to buy the next day, and we couldn't find anything behind all the trees. So we found ourselves at the Chick-fil-A there on Lake Woodlands, uh, the one right across from the mall. And we were sitting there when I got a phone call from my mother that my father had passed away from a sudden heart attack. And that, that next couple of days was a little bit like a blur, but I drove back to Arkansas where they lived, and the, real, the first real moment of clarity was the moment that I was standing in the funeral home next to my brother, and we were looking at my father on a, on a table with a sheet pulled up. And I will never forget that feeling of the finality of death. You know, we deal, we talk about death all the time, but it's very difficult to understand the significance of it until you've seen it yourself, and you've seen the ugliness of it and the finality of it. But I saw it there that day, and it was a moment of clarity for me. All of a sudden, the stakes of life had been raised to a new level. And the next couple of days, I prepared a eulogy to give at his funeral. And I remember that at the funeral, you know, I gave the eulogy. It was a beautiful service. And the last line that I stated at the end of my eulogy was, I know I'll see him again one day at the resurrection. And I said it just like that. But as the words came out of my mouth, they sounded really hollow. They didn't sound like I believed them. And haunting me in the back of my mind was the image of my father just a couple days before. And I thought to myself, after the service, is like, could it all really be true? All of these things that I had been taught growing up, that I had in some sense taken for granted, now the question was really posed, could it all be true? I went back to law school, was in my second year of law school, and by God's providence, I had an 8 o'clock class, and before that 8 o'clock class, I had to drive into the, into the campus, and so I listened to a radio program from 7.30 to 8 o'clock, and it was Renewing Your Mind with R.C. Sproul. And I started listening to that program, and, and there was kind of a hunger there to, for information and for knowledge, and if you've ever listened to R.C.'s program, he is a great teacher. It's very intellectual. It was perfect for a second-year law student who already thought he knew a little bit of everything. And it was about midway through the semester that he began a series called Questions Answered. 
And the last episode of that series was the question, is there life after death? And there was an intersection at that moment with this great question that I had. The stakes had been risen. I wanted to know, is it possible? Could that be true? And then at this timely moment in God's providence, here was a teacher who walked through in a very cogent way, in a very articulate way, Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15, arguing for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and for the hope that we have in that resurrection. And for the first time, I remember sitting there, I, I got to class right as the, uh, I got to the campus right as the episode was ending, and as the episode was ending and he, he concluded his argument, I, I couldn't go into class. I just sat there thinking about the implications of what I had heard. And, and what it did for me at that moment is it gave me my final moment of clarity. For the first time, I understood exactly who Jesus was. I saw who He was. You know, as Paul, Peter reminds us here in this verse, in chapter 1, verses 13, he says, be sober-minded. There was a moment where I became sober, and I understood clearly who Christ was. I was shocked out of my drunkenness with the world and into a sober thinking about who Christ was. There have been lots of moments since then where I have fallen back into unclear thinking, into a lack of, of sober thinking. There have been plenty of times where I have forgotten or taken my eyes off the hope of the gospel. As a matter of fact, there have been moments, there have been days, there have been weeks, there have been entire months of unsober thinking since that moment. In those moments of unsober thinking, all kinds of sin continues to come out. There is hypocrisy where I, I put off a, a vibe that I, I am one way and then I live another way. There are moments of malice where I'm angry at people, where anger comes spewing out, moments of, of rage and anger that sometimes affect me. There are misplaced priorities. There's envy of what other people have. All of these things still come out of me. There are moments of, of extreme unclarity. But I'm always drawn back in my sober moments to my hope in the gospel. And it's with that kind of thinking, it's that kind of example that I want to draw our attention to chapter 2. Because that's where Peter is. He's just articulated how our hope must be firmly in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he says this, So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. You see, when your hope is in the gospel, you put away those things. You put away all malice, all, all desiring of harm towards others, all anger towards your brother and sisters, towards your fellow human beings. You put away that, all of that. You put away all deceit. And that comes in two kinds, doesn't it? It comes in self-deceit, where we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to. And it comes of the kind of deceit where we think poorly of others. 
where we think ourselves better than everybody else or somebody else who's different from us or who has different opinions from us. Put away all hypocrisy. There's no need to pretend that you're one thing when you're not. There's no need for that. Because our hope isn't in our own reputation. It isn't in, in what people think of us. It isn't in ourselves. It's in, our, it's in the gospel. We can put that away. Put away all envy. You know, somebody else has something that you want. It's just a, a, an indication that your hope really isn't in the gospel, which God has promised you everything you will ever need. Why do you want what other people want? All of that's perishing. All of that's going away. Why would you ever want any of that if your hope is in the gospel? If you know that God has given you everything that you need, why would you need what everybody else wants or what everybody else has? And you put away all slander. Why would you talk bad about other people knowing who you are? Why would you ever say false things about other people? And so Peter says, look, put all of that away in light of your hope in the gospel. Put all of that away. And then he says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow into salvation. You know, I've, I've counseled couples quite a bit, many of them who are angry with each other, who have arguments, who have issues that are very difficult to resolve, and they are very difficult to resolve issues. Sometimes they're very complicated. Sometimes they involve deep sin on, on both sides of the, of the issue, and, and uh, sometimes they have very legitimate issues, very legitimate concerns, and they're just missing each other from time to time. And it builds up resentment. It builds up anger. It builds up malice towards one another. And as they start describing the activities of the other person, a lot of times you'll hear things you're like, well, that's not true. That's not true. That seems a little deceitful the way you characterize that portion of the argument. That seems maybe like you're slandering the other. You know, all of these things, all of these activities begin to come out in this anger. And in those counseling sessions, there's a barometer for how bad it is, in my view. When the counselor, when usually me, or when I've seen Casey do it, begins to talk about the gospel, the barometer to how serious the problem is, is this. When the gospel is discussed, do the walls start to come down? Do the hearts start to soften? Do people start to say, wait a minute, I know, I need to back off all of these, this anger, this frustration, this malice that's coming out? Does that begin to dissipate when the gospel is brought into the picture? Here Paul or Peter is saying, the way to rid ourselves of these emotions that destroy community of these emotions that tear down one another. The way to, to get rid of these things is to meditate frequently all the time on the pure milk of the gospel. Like babies, we need it. We need to be reminded of it, of what our hope is actually in over and over and over again. We need to be fed from the gospel over and over and over again if we're going to grow. 
into our salvation, into what we've been promised. If we're going to live out the gospel and what it means for us, we need to hear it frequently. We need to feed on it over and over and over again. I know, you know, Casey and, and frequently I am up here and we're talking about the necessity, the need to be in church on a weekly basis to hear the gospel preached. We talk about being connected in a community group and we're not doing it just so that we can have good church numbers. We know that there's no hope to grow unless we're consistently and constantly reminded of the gospel, not just here from the pulpit, not just here as we sing, but every day as we live in community with one another. That's our job, is to remind each other over and over and over again of where our hope is. That's what we have to do for one another. That's what we should be seeking for ourselves, to be reminded of our hope in the gospel so that we can continue to grow in salvation. So, that's how our thinking is fostered. That's how this sober-minded thinking is fostered. That's how it's cultivated, is by a constant intake of the pure milk of the gospel, a constant reminder of our hope. And the alternatives are this. You know, the alternatives are this. We can be constantly reminded of the things that the world wants us to be reminded of. And the analogy here for Peter is very clear. That's the alcohol. That's the alcohol. That's the stuff that gets our mind racing and all the different things that that we want or that we have to have that causes this, this angry drunkenness with the things of the world to come out of us. Completely unhealthy. And we are saturated in it in our culture. There's all kinds of messages about things that you need, things that you want, how the world should be, whether it's in the news media, whether it's in uh, you know, pictures that are on Facebook, whether uh, you know, it's, it's uh, the advertising that we're inundated with. There's all kinds of things that are out there trying to tell us, These are, this is what you need. Your hope should be in this. If you get this, you'll be happy. Take this vacation, you'll be happy. If you can achieve this much wealth, you'll be happy. If you have this kind of house, you'll be happy. And it's easy to become drunk on that. And when we don't get it, well, then the malice comes out. Then the envy comes out. Then the deceit comes out. It's easy to be drunk on the things of the world. But there's, you know, there's a middle ground a little bit. There's a middle ground. You know, many people you know, come to a church service and it doesn't, can be here. It can happen here, it can happen in other churches, and you know, they'll come and they, they, they are in it for the emotional experience. Casey last week talked about his experience in youth camps, and there's a method to the youth camp model. It's where you, you, know, you get the kids in there, you teach them a few funny jokes, you tell them a few funny jokes in the first sermon, you kind of get them all excited and riled up, you start feeding them all kinds of caffeine and, and uh, kind of get them into an emotional state until by the end they're in such an emotional state that they're up at the front making promises that they're never going to agree with or they're never going to follow through in two weeks down the road, right? It's an emotional experience. And it's great to come home and tell mom and dad about this wonderful emotional high that you had at camp, and that gets them to send you back there next year, Right? 
But what that is, is that, that's because we're light on the milk. We're light on the actual gospel. And we're heavy on what I would say is probably more just caffeine. You know? Probably just more caffeine. Getting people into an emotional state as if that is what we need instead of the sober thinking that Paul calls us to. The sober thinking that Paul says we need to be of a clear mind. Now, look, and this is why I'm saying it's a little bit of a middle ground. This is a little bit of a more difficult issue. I would not be here without caffeine this morning. I'll just be honest with you. I mean, you know, Casey uh, texted me yesterday, and we kind of had a conversation with a few of us, and, and I drew the straw to be one up here preaching this morning. And you know what? So I had to get up at like 5 o'clock this morning and start writing my sermon. <laughs> and I wouldn't be here without caffeine. I mean, we'd be done by now. And maybe some of you guys wish there wasn't caffeine. But caffeine is a utility, you know? And we can get high on emotional experiences towards the wrong things just as easily we can get high on emotional experiences towards the right things. So I'm not here to talk down camps that you send your kids to, but just to be clear here, the pure milk needs to be something we intake every single day. You're not going to get it at a one-time experience. We need to be constantly feeding on the pure milk of the gospel, and that's where the Word is preached. It's the Word of the Lord that endures forever. Not your emotional state. That'll come and go. It's the Word of the Lord that endures forever. So we, we cultivate this sober-minded thinking by being in the Word. Now, one caution here, because he says this here at the end of verse, in, in verse 3. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good... If you have tasted that the Lord is good, you have to see who Christ is clearly before any amount of gospel preaching will do you any good. You can sit under good gospel preaching all of your life, but if you don't see Christ clearly for who He is, it will do you no good. You have to have that moment of clarity and see who He is. See His importance. See Him as Lord before the milk will do you any good. You must be born again. So that's a word of caution. And there are dangers if we don't, if we don't see Him clearly. Let's see. I think to understand the remainder of these, these verses that we're going to look at today, we have to go back briefly and see Peter's moment of clarity. You see, Peter also had a moment of clarity. And you, you, you can't read his epistles without knowing some of his story. Back in Matthew chapter 16, we, we read a brief story of, of Peter and his great confession that he makes about Christ. All right? They are in a, an area called Caesarea Philippi, the district of Caesarea Philippi, and we read this in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And then Simon Peter, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. 
Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven, who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And that word there means Petros, the rock. You are the rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You're Peter, you're the rock. And on you, Peter, I'm going to build my church. Okay. You see Peter's moment of clarity? For this brief moment, he sees you're, you're Christ. You're the son of the living God. Everybody else is asking questions or speculating about who Jesus might be. But Peter sees clearly for just a moment. He sees clearly for just a moment, but he doesn't quite fully understand. Just a few verses later, when Jesus begins talking about going to Jerusalem to die, Peter says, no, 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 you can't do that. You can't do that. And Jesus turns to him and says, get behind me, Satan. Get behind me, Satan. The son must go to Jerusalem and suffer and die. So Peter has this moment of clarity. He, He knows who Christ is in some way or some sense, but he doesn't fully understand. He hasn't experienced what he needs to experience just yet. A couple chapters later, and actually we read it, if you, were, if you were with us in our series through Mark, we read of Jesus on the Mount of Olives, and he's sitting there with some of his disciples. He's sitting there with Peter, James, John, and Andrew. All right, and somebody comes out of the, the great temple mount in Jerusalem, these, this incredible building built of these huge stones, and says, teacher, look at these stones. You see this, this amazing building? Isn't this, isn't this incredible? And there Jesus in front of Peter, James, John, and Andrew says, one day these, all these stones are going to be torn down, stone from stone. Not one stone is going to be left standing upon another. He says, the temple is going to come down. That's going to be destroyed. Peter, as a good Jew, must have in some sense been horrified by that. That the place where they worshipped God was going to be torn down, stone from stone, brick from brick. He must have been horrified by that thought. A few days later, Jesus is arrested. And Peter, kind of following behind the the arresting party, finds himself in the courtyard watching Jesus' trial. And there Peter is as he's watching Jesus' trial, and the main accusations brought against Jesus are all the witnesses coming in saying, this man said he's going to tear down our temple. He's going to destroy our temple. And there's the religious leaders are incensed at this right? This is the temple that they've built to worship God. This is their temple to worship God. And finally, Jesus is condemned essentially for threatening the kingdom of men, the temple they have built with their own hands to worship God. And it's there in that courtyard that Peter denies Jesus and runs off into the night, betraying Him. But then Peter has one more moment of clarity. He's there for the resurrection. He sees the risen Christ. And Christ restores him to his ministry. 
Christ forgives him for his betrayal. And that that brief moment of clarity that Peter had at Caesarea Philippi when he said, you're the Christ, you're the Son of God, suddenly Peter knows exactly what that means. He knows exactly who, who the Christ is. He knows who Jesus is. He believes in Christ and in Him alone. Not the temple, not the religious system, not the Jewish people, in Christ alone. That's who He puts His trust in. And Christ begins to build His church. As you think about that, as you consider Peter's experience, his his moment of clarity where it all suddenly makes sense to him, read with me in verse 4. As you come to Him, Jesus, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You see, Peter, going back to this great promise that Jesus made to him that you're a rock, and on you I'm going to build my church, now expands that analogy out to all of those who believe. We're all the stones in which God is building His church. His temple, not the physical one made with human hands, but His temple, the one made with spiritual hands, with the hands of God, for the worship of God, for the true worship of God. Paul expands that out to all of us, and we are part of that building. We talk about going to church We don't go to church. We are the church. There is no church building that represents the church of God. There are only a people of God that are part of the structure that God is building, that are part of the temple where God is worshipped. There is no building that we can go to where we can get that. There are only people that we can go to to experience the worship of God in community with other people who believe in Jesus Christ. We're stones that are being built up into the temple of God. Paul says something similar in his book on Ephesians, to the Ephesians. He says this in chapter 2, verses 19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Himself being our cornerstone, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So here we have it. Christ is the cornerstone. Without Him, the whole structure collapses. 
All of our faith must be in Him. All of our hope must be in Him. He's the one who holds it all together. But the prophets, the ones who declared this gospel to all of us, the ones who we read here today, the, the apostles, the ones who we read here today, the, the, uh, the gospels, the ones uh, who declare the story of Christ, that's the foundation. That's the foundation. And as we obey, as we believe in, in the things that are taught in Scripture, the things that we have received from the prophets and the apostles about Jesus Christ, then we're built up into a structure that worships Him. Jesus is the cornerstone. The prophets and the apostles are the foundation. And we are the structure. We are the structure. The church is not a physical building. It is the people of God. And so here's the point. Here's what Peter would want you to know. Christ is either the cornerstone upon which you build your life, or He is a stumbling stone that will cause you to stumble and fall. Peter continues in verse 8, or verse 6, For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Again, think back to Peter's experience here. Think back to his experience. He was there at the trial. He was there at the trial of Jesus as they sought to put him to death for daring, for daring, to challenge their kingdom. You see, their hope wasn't in God. Their hope wasn't in the stone that God was laying, the cornerstone that God was laying, the chosen and precious cornerstone of God. That was not where their hope was. Their hope was in the religious system that they had built and the temple that represented it. Okay? It was a hope that they had built with their own hands, something that they had made. And Christ comes in and He challenges that, threatens to tear it down, and what comes out? All the malice of the religious leaders, all the deceit to try to find a way, to try to manufacture a way to put Him to death, all the hypocrisy of looking pious on the outside while secretly inside of you wanting to put to death the Son of God. All the envy, because He is one that seems to be able to preach with authority when you can't. All of the slander to try to manufacture some kind of charge against Him to turn everyone against Him. Peter saw this in the religious leaders who put Jesus to death, and he said, look, they stumbled over Him. They stumbled over him to their own doom. That was their destiny. If your hope is in anything other 
than the gospel of Jesus Christ, you are bound to stumble over him. Trying to get after, trying to seek that thing. You are bound to stumble over him if, if you do not put your trust in him. And that is the danger. That is the danger. And it is possible, it is, because hypocrisy is one of the issues here, it is possible to look very Christian on the outside, while, to, to, to say on one level that my hope is in Christ, while in reality having our eggs in all different kinds of baskets, right? We don't want to put all our eggs in that one basket. Yeah, my hope is in Christ, but you know, it's also kind of in my career. Yeah, my hope is in Christ, but yeah, it's also kind of in how people see my family. Yeah, my hope is in Christ, but it's also kind of in how people think, you know, how smart I am or how intelligent I look or my reputation. You know, and, and here's, the, here's the test, right? Here's the test. When those things are challenged, when somebody comes after your money or your family or your, your, uh, your reputation, does malice pour out from you? Does deceit begin to fester within you? Do, you? do you try to lie about what you're really like? Are you willing to lie to, to keep what you have? Is there hypocrisy there that, that you, you just will not let be exposed? That you're never going to let anybody know those secret sins that are just below the surface. You'll do whatever it takes to cover them up. Will you, will you say, hey, well, they're worse are you willing to slander other people to take the attention off yourself? Is there an area in your life where those things pour forth when they're pressed upon? I venture to bet there probably are. And, and here's the question. Here's the question. Because all of us really probably have that problem to some extent. I know I do. And I'll, I'll just be honest. For me, it's reputation. It's respect. If I feel like my reputation's being attacked, the people are talking about me poorly or badly, it all wells up within me. And I have to ask myself this question. Because on one level, that's just a, I just continue to be a sinful person and I have to repent daily. On another level, it, it's a bigger problem if the gospel doesn't deal with it. Because in those moments, they may just be those moments of unsober thinking where I have lost sight of the gospel for a moment. But when somebody comes to me and begins to remind me that my hope is in Christ and in Christ only, do I back down? Do those feelings dissipate? Am I able to be kind of grabbed by the gospel? Or do these things just perpetually fester in me and resentment continues to grow? And it doesn't matter if I hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, it doesn't matter. I'm still the offended party. I'm still going to get after that person. I'm still going to, oh no, they, they can't know what's really going on in my life. That's going to help you identify whether this is a real problem in your life or whether these are just moments of unsober thinking, the, the very kinds of thinking that Peter is addressing here, where he's addressing those who are elect, those who hold of a like faith, and he's saying, look, if, if, if you have these things in you, let me call you back to your hope. 
If you can be called back to your hope, then you know your hope is in Christ. But if it, does, if it has no effect on you, it just makes no difference. And you're going to be angry. You're going to be willing to slander, live as a hypocrite, and these things just have no effect on you. Then, my friends, let me introduce you to Christ. You need Him. He is your only hope. Your reputation will not save you. Your money will not save you. Your political party will not save you. None of those things will. Only Christ. Let me give you one more helpful thing as we end here. In verses 9 through 10, Peter says this. He says this to those who have their hope in Christ. He says these words to those whose, whose hope is in Christ and in Christ alone, whose focus is there. This is what he says to them. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people. Once you, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Here's what Peter's saying. Peter's saying this. You know if your hope's in Christ, if you can say this, my life, I will spend my life proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. I will give away my life proclaiming Christ and serving Him. If that is what your life is founded upon, on proclaiming the excellencies of Christ, you are part of this holy priesthood, this royal priesthood, this holy nation. You are part of the temple in which God is worshipped. That's the defining characteristic. The ability to give your life away as a sacrifice, proclaiming the excellencies of Christ. And you will lose all money. You will lose all reputation. You will lose even your family, even all the other good things that are, that are, that are not bad, but they don't hold a candle to the excellencies of Christ. That's the defining characteristic of a Christian. And if you can truly say, that's how I live my life, then your hope is in Christ. Your hope is in Christ. So here's what I'm going to have you do uh, this week, maybe with a spouse, maybe with your community group, maybe with just a group of friends. Ask them, is my life about proclaiming the excellencies of Christ? And then also ask them this, say, hey, are there areas that you've noticed about me that when they are pressed upon, Malice comes out, envy comes out, slander comes out, deceit comes out. Are there areas there? Because it may be that they can call you back in those areas to sober thinking. To remind you that your hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. Have those conversations. And together as the church, as the building, as the temple of God, we can proclaim the excellencies of Christ together.
and be consumed by that. Let's pray.